Who's ready for new metrics panel? Trends, tremors, and tools. All right. All right. High five. High five. High five. High five. All right, everybody, let's get started. This is the, one of the most compelling. Hi, Ariel. This is one of the most compelling discussions that we're going to have. You're the hardcore people who are ready to learn about what are the trends in investing for impact. What are the tremors that are shaking the foundation of our institutions? And what tools can we use to do it ourselves and go from there? So, um, so we have esteemed panel today. We're going to go in this order even. So we have Joy Poland from uh, Building Bridges, who's also working with the states, Rhode Island State Society of CPAs. So she's going to talk to us about private companies and how CPAs are playing a leadership role. Uh, and then we have... Uh, Steve. Steve. Okay, and then Steve. First, we're going to go to Bart uh, from B Corp. Uh, after that, uh, to talk about new corporate forms and new types of quantifying impact. And then Steve's going to talk about uh, carbon disclosure, water disclosure, and uh, forest disclosure. And then finally, saving the best for last, bringing up the cleanup hitter, clearing the bases, is Bill Bowie, co-editor of the New Metrics channel on uh, sustainable brands. So if you have content around New Metrics that you want to contribute, Bill and uh, I are the co-editors, and so we'll be working with you to help shape it in a way that uh, can get the maximum impact for everybody. So I'm Paul Herman uh, from Pip Investor, uh, and so we are an investment and ratings company. We rate the future risk and upside of all types of investments, public and private, stocks and bonds. So you can think of us like the morning star for the 21st century. That also helps investors uh, implement that in their portfolio. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of some trends, tremors, and tools that we're seeing. And then everyone, all panelists, have actually aligned behind these three, te three themes. Trends and tremors of what's in the marketplace with sort of a landscape view. Um, and then tools. Um, and then just because we'll be in the middle of it, we also have a couple of members from the divestment team at Penn. So we have Sarah and Ariel, who are two of uh, a couple score of team members. Um, so we'll give them a chance to speak up. And if you, too, have tools that you're using, this is meant to be an interactive, engaging discussion. Sound good? All right. Silence equals acceptance. All right. So I just want to reinforce this one more time. Um, because most investors and most executives don't understand that 80% of the stock market value is not on the balance sheet. It is intangible, not tangible. They are things like, what do you think is in that 80%? Human capital, typically the majority of that 80%. And where are people on the financial statements? They're an expense on the income statement. So when a company wants to increase its profit, it typically wants to reduce its cost. And when they reduce their cost, they cut people. But if people were an asset on the balance sheet, like we saw from Interface, then we can build up that asset. So there actually was a, and I say was, unfortunately, a fund that, that rated companies by these intangibles. It's called the Ocean Tomo Patent uh, Exchange Traded Fund. And it existed from 2006 to early 2012. Why did it stop? Look, it had better performance. So how could this fund go out of business? What happened? No buyers. No buyers. Financial products are sold, not bought. So it's up to each of you, if you believe in these intangibles, to choose to uh, encourage yourself, your family, your advisor, your broker, to invest in this way. This went out of business because it didn't have enough assets to be profitable in operating the fund. Obviously, the strategy worked, but the fund didn't survive. So we talk about impact. We talk about sustainability. But I'd encourage you to use these words in talking to your companies, inside your companies, and to your stakeholders. What is the future risk and upside? And what metrics are you using to identify that future risk? And if anybody says, oh, I have a ratio for future risk, please let us know. Because most risk ratios in finance are historical, 80 years of historical data, not future. 
And as we uh, showed you this morning, less, three out of four or more, 75% or more of managers are not using these knowable but ignored factors of risk and upside. And the panel will talk to you about them. And in fossil-free portfolios, this is the, these black lines are the embedded fossil in funds. And so you have a choice when you call Vanguard, Fidelity, E-Trade to say, how much carbon is in my fund? And they'll say, oh, I don't know. So it's up to you. It's up to you calling your fund managers, calling your 401k manager, calling the people who run these funds, because you own it. It's your money. It's not their money. You've hired them to manage your money. You can do this not only in equities, you can also do it in bonds. So uh, at HIP, we actually rate the uh, cities now. So there's 19,000 cities in the U.S., 3,000 counties, 50 states. So the city of Seattle is actually one of the most sustainable cities. And so we applied the HIP categories of health, wealth, earth inequality. Uh, we don't have one for trust yet. And so we look at things like employment, affordability, people commuting inside and outside the city. And now that you have this impact rating on a city, a county, a state, who all issue muni bonds, or a university, community college, or K-12, or a water utility, like this wastewater utility in Seattle, you can layer that on your muni bond allocation. So we don't have to rely on S&P and Moody's and Fitch anymore, who, by the way, only look at two to three years of financials. They don't look at, these are 30-year bonds. They're not looking at 30 years of risk and rating it for 30 years of risk. They're rating it, is it going to pay back in the next two to three years? So what we, what we at HIP do is we rate stocks, we rate bonds, we aggregate them up into funds. You could use other rating systems like carbon counts, like Mark talked about yesterday, and context-based. You could uh, use a CSR Hub. You could use B Corp scores. Use something for your portfolio public and private companies, stocks and bonds, real estate and hedge funds, and start tracking your impact. And so when you do this and you plot out the risk and return and impact of a fund, and Joy's going to talk to you about how they've done this in a 401k plan, you can start to interact with your portfolio. And uh, several investors who we've met have said, um, oh, I get my statement and I put it in the drawer. So I don't know if anybody does that. But there's quite a few people who do. I put it in the drawer. It's your money. If you put it in the drawer, you're not analyzing future risk. So this is something you can do, and you can look at it by sector. So this is the financial sector over five years. It just broke even if you own the Fidelity financial sector. Up there, actually, is healthcare. So different sectors have different risk and reward performance over periods of time, and they have different impacts. This is fixed income. These are preferred stocks. These are government bonds. This is a mix of U.S. and international equities, large, small cap. So this is just a sense of like a visual to get engaged with your portfolio. And companies like Morningstar show you the risk and return, but they don't show you the impact. And most financial institutions don't show you the impact. So it's up to us to challenge the people who manage our money. It's your money to be engaged in a more impactful way. So wrapping up the intro, there's a thing called the Giving Pledge. It's 130 families, billionaires. You have to be a billionaire to be in the Giving Pledge Club. As we know from Forbes, there's 450 billionaires. So this actually has one-third of all billionaires have committed to giving away half or more of their wealth as charitable donations before they die. And three of the families have died. Uh, the principals have died so far. But this is all one-way flow. This is all tax-deductible, one-way charity. What if we had an investing pledge? What if those billionaires said, no, we want half or more of our portfolio to be invested for impact by a certain year? So here's a sample of uh, some investors who are doing that. You can go to investingpledge.com, check it out. You could make your own investing pledge. And you can make your own impact goals. I want to support companies who have women on the board. I want to support carbon-efficient companies. It's your money. So that's a quick brief overview of some trends and tremors and tools. And um, so now I'll turn it over to Joy. But remember, this is all in the context of how do we create massive change for billion-person impact, million-job platforms, 
and trillion dollar markets. Just to introduce yourself. And okay, so hi, I'm Joy Boland um, with Building Bridges. And first, I have to say that it's been so awesome being here with all of you and talking with all of you because usually when I talk about this stuff, people stare at me like I've got 10 heads. They think I'm insane, and they're just like, what are you talking about? You know, So you all get it, and it's really refreshing to be able to share ideas and everything with you. So the way that we are looking at this, a little bit different of a lens, um, we've created a program called the More Value and Profit Program. And we built this program in collaboration with the Rhode Island State Society of CPAs. HIP Investor is a big part of the program. SNW Asset Management is another one of our um, consultants in the, in the program and a variety of uh, other thought-leading consultants. And the basic premise behind this program is to demonstrate clearly how these sustainability strategies, intangibles, new metrics, actually drive business value for the privately held business and business owner. So these are definite value drivers, bringing money to the bottom line, adding profitability, cutting costs and risks for the private sector. So in terms of the tremors, I, I love this quote that I uh, got out of The Guardian by Alan White and this is exactly what we're talking about at the, at, at the base of our program and working with the CPA community to start to quantify this. And we all know that by changing the fundamentals of measurement, reporting, ranking companies is going to be a big impetus for this. However, the biggest, the two main uh, tremors that we see or threats is there is a huge lack of understanding about how these principles, metrics, sustainability issues impact privately held companies. They don't understand the implications. They don't understand the re relevance, nor do the CPAs at large. And the other piece is there's another big threat is that the mainstream population, the average investor, does not understand these issues and how they're directly impacting our personal lives. So the way that we see being able to accelerate the second half of this quote is all about changes happening, but it's not happening fast enough. So part of this program is about to start to really accelerate the understanding of these principles and bring it to the mainstream so that we can keep it moving. And the one way that we see to be able to do this is start to bridge the gap between privately held companies and publicly traded companies. Because we tend to kind of polarize and think that this is all about just publicly traded companies and shareholder value. And that is not accurate. This is about stakeholder value as well. And everyone walking the planet is stakeholders. So that outnumbers the shareholders <laughs> from my perspective. So how are we going to do the bridging of the gap? Number one way is we have to start to penetrate the uh, Mainstream, so through CPAs and through financial advisors specifically. CPAs and financial advisors, a lot of the times when I'm attending these kind of events or SRI events and you see the big sponsors, the institutional sponsors, financial institutional sponsors up there sponsoring our event, but then you go to the actual advisors that work for these companies, the feet on the street, as we call it, and you ask them, what is ESG and are you guys constructing portfolios sustainable? They have no idea what you're talking about. They don't know what ESG is. They don't know what sustainable investing is. And when they think they do, they're saying that it's socially responsible investing. And the reason they don't really get involved in that is because it doesn't perform as well as the market, which is completely erroneous from our, from our perspective. The CPA community, the same thing. They say it's for the big four. They the publicly traded. This doesn't impact us. So why would we be spending any time educating ourselves? These two populations have mandated CPE um, uh, uh, instruction that they must take every year to maintain their licenses. So there's venues that are built for this, the dissemination of this information. The companies, the big four, the big institutions that are sponsoring these events can easily be educating their feet on the street about these, these issues, but they're not. So to me, that's, that's a, a big threat to the momentum of this, of this. And the other piece is the average investor. How do we bridge this information over to the average investor to get them to see that their portfolios and the, these issues are directly impacting their portfolios but they're also impacting their personal lives. And Alan said it beautifully earlier, like how do we get these people to care? So one of the ways that we work on uh, explaining some of this is to the mainstream and getting them to care 
is Kevin, Kevin's Law. Is anybody familiar with Kevin's Law that didn't talk to me yesterday because I told a lot of people about it? Okay, so this is Kevin, all right? Kevin, this, this law was, um, was uh, put out there and named in memory of two-and-a-half-year-old Kevin who ate a hamburger with his family that had been contaminated with E. coli, and, it di- and he died. And when they found out the genesis of the meat, we found that this was a company that was one of America, it was a subsidiary of one of America's biggest agribusinesses, and it had five complaints over the previous 13 months, tested positive for salmonella and E. coli, and recalled almost 2 million pounds of meat. So what we're seeing is, you know, when you look at that, that whole tragedy, did the company intend to harm Kevin and harm the family? Of course not. Was the company trying to cut corners and save money to make a better return for its shareholders? Probably. Did Kevin's parents or grandparents perhaps have this business in their portfolio and was investing in the very company that just took their child and their grandchild? Are we investing in those companies that are negatively impacting us and our lives and and having us um, experience tremendous pain? So those are some of the questions um, that you ask. You know, the chasing the the short-term earnings, chasing return, chasing shareholder value leads to these kinds of issues. So then the next piece are these new metrics we're talking about. So Kevin's Law was introduced in 2005, but it never became a law. It never made it through committee because the corporate meat processor lobbyists keep saying they're lobbying against the passage of this law. And to this date, this law is still not passed. So it's interesting to me that some of the metrics that we're trying to uh, get uh, to be implemented and used throughout public and private companies are metrics of disclosure, reporting, metrics of lobbying and political spending, and all of these things that are they're, tan- they're intangible, but they drive value or create risks. So maybe the reporting and, and maybe the, the passage of these things could actually um, uh, prevent these kinds of issues from happening. The other question I'd like to pose to the crowd is, how much, did it co- how much does it cost when there's 76 million people that are sick every year from foodborne illnesses? There's uh, 5,000 deaths every year from foodborne illnesses and 325,000 hospitalizations for foodborne illnesses from companies that perhaps might not be doing the, the um, standard, using their standard uh, procedures for creating and, and utilizing, you know, making this food. So those are some of the, some of the questions. So how, what are the trends and how are we going to start to bring mainstream more on board with all of this? So the thought leaders, we're starting to see that we can use ESG fundamentals and principles to engage the CPA community, number one, first and foremost, because they are the most trusted advisor. Non-Big Four, regular CPAs, most trusted advisor, and they are all about mitigating risk. That's their job. They're auditing 401k plans. They are on chairs of boards of pensions. They have fiduciary responsibility. They need to be bringing more value to their own clients, teaching them how to mitigate risk. So they're a perfect community to start to really engage about these issues. Engaging the business owner and being able to take this information and show the business owner of a privately held company how this will drive his bottom line um, profitability, reduce his cost and risk, and elevate the valuation of his company, which eventually, in a privately held company, he's going to want to transition for succession planning. So if we can show him how to get the valuation up on his company, now we're enabling him and empowering him to make a uh, a complete transaction that will will meet his um, desired numbers that they want to get for the company. How else we're doing this is it by engaging um, leaders that are tasked in our states with growing businesses, job creation. This model that we're going to show today is a business model that is a knowledge economy-based business model that is replicable, scalable, that we can use to educate more consultants that can go out and do this work. And then lastly, one of the trends is starting to partner with colleges and universities because they are all building sustainability curriculums involved with uh, divestment programs and all kinds of things like that. So the way that we're using this, the tools that we're using to actually do this in the more value and profit program is a people-driven business model, and I'll show that in a second. 
sustainability and scoring and impact ratings on 401ks and pensions because this is a huge way to really educate people, the employees of these companies, what their investments are doing, what the options are inside their 401k plans, and then showing what other options we could start to integrate into 401k plans and pensions and endowments, et cetera, that are more in alignment with impact. We're using the PC Providence College internship. We're building it out with the MBA students now. They're going to be working with us to quantify this information, do the assessments and all that great stuff. Great project for them to really learn hands-on how to do this. The other thing is we're creating profit centers for teaching CPAs how to use this to create a profit center inside their own firm so that they can start to do this kind of consulting and they can start to do assurance services, non-Big Four, but doing what the Big Four are doing for the two million companies that are privately held out there in the world. And then lastly, we're using our community signature for this pilot um, is taking what we're learning, building curriculums, and integrating it into the school system, K through 16. So kindergarten through 12, they're not getting any of this. None of this. And there, there is a venue out there. I would ask all of you to check it out. It's called the No Child Left Inside Coalition. It's all about getting kids outside, environmental literacy, learning, combating childhood obesity. It's a great program. And there's channels to get this information through our environmental literacy plants in the schools. So now we can start educating kids, which will then go home and educate their parents. And then we'll end up completing this ecosystem for some real systemic change. So... The people, am I out of time? Okay, so the people-driven business model, these are the five, health, wealth, earth, equality, and trust, taken right out of the hip book. And we have strategies that map, specific strategies that map to each one of those metrics and feeds them and builds them and delivers profit to the bottom line. The one we're going to focus on is the wealth scoring that you've seen several slides on already. But the wealth score, this is what we did with our um, partner, our CPA firm partner. So we took their 401k plan, and this is the heat map that we use. Had HIP investor score all the mutual funds and look at the underlying companies of which they've already got 4,000 scores for, and line up the green are the best positive net impact to society. The reds are the negative net impact to society and the rates of return. So as you can see, there's a lot of positive there's some really good fun choices in here, but there's also some ones that aren't really doing so great in terms of the impact, and there's room to improve this 401k plan for the CPA firm. And the CPA firm also does wealth management. So now they can start educating their own clients about how to score out their existing 401ks and start to bring more potential for positive impact. This is the same chart that you saw that Paul's been doing, but we took the KLR, specific 401k plan, mapped it out. And as you can see, the ones with the highest net impact are the ones that are, some of them over there, are beating the efficient frontier, which is really great. And there's a lot of room by the ones that are lower impact to make additional changes and put more funds in. There's 66% uh, of participants want these SRI options in their, in their 401k choices. Only 14% um, of defined contribution plans have SRI options in them. We're using this as a tool for employee engagement because six, uh, Deloitte just came out with a study, 62% of generation wires want to work for companies that do good corporate social responsibility. So the woman that is the CPA there actually brought this to the firm's attention and said, there is no really great choices in here. I want to have better choices for our 401k plan, and that's what brought this whole spurring on of, of scoring it and rating it. So basically, the tool for um, employee engagement is how we're doing the, the wealth and the wealth metric and the scoring. KLR is our firm that is uh, a great CPA firm, multiple locations throughout the country, that is forward-thinking enough to try to pilot this with us and see, is this a viable um, profit driver for their privately held companies? HIP Investor obviously is center to this. We're using them for our scoring and impact ratings. And SNW Asset Management is actually, an, is actually a fixed income bond, active bond portfolio manager that is using impact ratings, using the HIP impact ratings to build portfolios that have in the fixed income space that have positive impact. So there's a lot of great things that we're doing in the MVP program. And if you have any other questions or want to become involved with it in any way, please feel free to 
contact me after the presentation. Hand it over to Bart. Good afternoon. Uh, so quick show of hands. Uh, how many of you have heard of a B Corporation? Excellent. So uh, I run one of the nonprofits that is focused on this particular community, uh, the community of uh, companies that are trying to use business as a force for good. We have a pretty simple mission at B-Lab, our nonprofit, which is we're trying to work with social entrepreneurs and sustainable businesses, those entrepreneurs who are really uh, trying to use uh, essentially capitalism to create change, to solve some social or environmental problem. Uh, one of the vehicles that we focus on is to try to drive capital to those organizations. Uh, we have about 850 certified B corporations so far, and they are part of an investment community. How many people have heard of impact investing? Okay. So I impact investing, uh, as a quick uh, background, is uh, honestly, we hope, we hope an emerging marketplace. It is still relatively nascent. And just the definition really quickly is it is um, investing capital in a way where you're creating both a financial return and a social return. Uh, it is uh, today estimated by a very, uh, various sources of um, consultants between a $50 uh, million to $100 million marketplace. It's actually quite small. And uh, the hope is that over time, in the next decade, uh, we're expecting to, to see that grow by tenfold. Uh, big picture, who's doing impact investing? Who's playing in this, in this marketplace? Uh, you have a, a variety of different players. You have development financial institutions. You have private foundations, financial institutions uh, like J.P. Morgan or Prudential. Uh, uh, Prudential is the uh, largest investor uh, in this space, uh, they have about a $500 million. And I used the wrong, I used million instead of billion. It's a uh, $50 to $100 billion marketplace. Uh, Prudential invests about $500 million alone in social impact. Uh, there's pension funds who are playing around in this, and there's also high net worth individuals and corporations that are playing in this marketplace. And what are they investing in? Truth be told, there is not a lot of uh, public uh, vehicles that they're investing in. They pretty much look at uh, these types of assets on the bottom, private equity, private debt, uh, looking for uh, triple bottom line, double bottom line equity funds. Um, they also are in hard assets, whether it be uh, green building or low-income housing. Uh, you see screen portfolios of government bonds on the fixed income side. And then there are cash and cash equivalents where people are putting money into uh, CDFIs or B corporations as a way to create an impact investment. So if you look at this arena, you, you essentially have most of the major players in the financial markets. And if you look at the types of assets, other than the private sec uh, public security, you have most of the security showing up as well. So what we're trying to help them with is how do we measure impact? And, and we're one of many folks working on trying to help the impact investing market uh, measure impact. And the truth is that they're looking at uh, impact in two different ways. Uh, very traditionally, with operational impacts, ESG impacts, where they're looking at governance, workers, community, environment, and consumer impact. But on the other side of the equation, what impact investors are really seeking are those enterprises that have a business model that through scale is actually creating some overall societal impact, alleviating poverty, rebuilding a community, preserving the environment, creating a great place to work. And on that side of the equation, what we're seeing more and more is a push, to, a push to greater depth around the measurement of impact, including intensity of the intervention, reach and scale of the intervention, efficacy of the intervention, whom they're serving with that intervention, and then even beyond that, how that intervention is impacting the overall industry. It is... Um, a critical need right now in this space, if we're really going to catalyze more money into what is a very small uh, capital market space, to help organizations measure impact. It is one of the missing links to unlock some capital because the truth be told, the impact investing market has largely relied on qualitative assessments of impact to date. Storytelling. You know, we joke that it is the providence of unicorns and rainbows because it is all in words. That is not the language of investors, 
And it's certainly not the language of the major capital markets. So to drive more money to this space, we not only need to move this into the quantified realm, but we also have to create comprehensive approaches that are comparable in their uh, overall view so that you can compare and contrast impact investments. So that was my trend. The impact investing market is emerging. For the first time, I think there is uh, some fire with all the smoke because there's been an awful lot of smoke in the impact investing marketplace, quite honestly. Uh, in terms of tremors, um, there is also amongst this community of leaders a movement to try to codify in law a new approach to fiduciary duty. So one of the things that we've been working at at B-Lab is actually creating a new legally uh, recognized corporate form, something called a benefit corporation. Uh, benefit corporations you should think of uh, really simply as redefining fiduciary duty so that a company is held accountable to create not only shareholder value but social value, legally accountable to create shareholder value and social value. The reason why this is a tremor is in 18 months this has passed in 20 states. It passed in 13 of those states unanimously without a single vote in opposition. Perhaps most importantly to this crowd is that it passed in Delaware this summer, August 1st. It went into effect with the full support of uh, the Chancery Court and the corporate bar and the governor and the secretary of state in the home of the American corporation. The benefit core is just one of many, though, that are out there uh, gaining momentum. There's something called an L3C that stands for uh, the L3 is Low Profit Limited Liability Corporation. There's something called the Flexible Purpose Corporation that's out in Washington and California. There is a Social Purpose Corporation that's making some way. And in uh, the U.K. and Chile, uh, we see um, a similar pursuit of a different type of corporate entity that is essentially bringing together the power of the private sector with the purpose of the public sector. I think the tremor of Delaware passing this legislation will soon be felt by uh, the major markets. It's going to take some time, but to have the head of the Chancery Court getting behind the idea of an organization that allows a company to use social entrepreneurship as a competitive advantage and remove impediments for those organizations to scale both profits and purpose is truly a tremor in this marketplace. So in terms of resources to get familiar with the impact investing market and these new legal forms, I tried to provide some uh, touch points for you all because my guess is most of this is relatively new to you. And some places I want to point you, there's a lot of names up here. Uh, there are... Uh, networks like the Global Impact Investing Network on the upper left-hand side and the Aspen Network of development, de Developing Entrepreneurs. Impact Base is a list of all uh, impact investing funds in the space uh, that you can find through the GIN, that top group. Tonic and investor circles are kind of like uh, angel funds that are investing in impact investing. You actually have some stock exchanges. Uh, one called the Social Stock Exchange over in London. There's a new one in Toronto called the SVX. The IIX is gathering steam over in uh, Asia. There's also one here in the United States called Mission Markets. Uh, there is a great convening that happens every year around this space called SOCAP. It happens every year in San Francisco. It happened about uh, three weeks ago, September 2nd and 3rd, I think. And there were 1,700 organizations, including representatives from all those major financial institutions, as well as uh, those leading fund managers who are investing in a way to create both a financial and social return. Uh, there's a wonderful organization called IRIS, the Impact Reporting and Investing Standards. It is essentially a dictionary or um, a catalog of impact metrics that can be used so that we're all using the same language, the same parlance. It is a public good. Uh, the, the things that our organization's focused on is obviously we have a community of certified B corporations, about 850 but right now. We also have something where we use... Um, essentially an assessment tool we call the B-Impact Assessment to rate impact investments on both uh, their social and environmental impact. It's called GEARS, the Global Impact Investing Rating System. 
Uh, this uh, picture down here in the right-hand corner is our B Impact Assessment. I want to pause for a second on that because it is a free and available resource that anybody can use. If you're just entering into this space, if this is relatively new to you, the idea of impact investing and using a business to create a financial and a social return, uh, this tool is uh, intended to be an educational tool. It's completely confidential. It's totally free. It's designed for companies with 10,000 employees and below. Over 15,000 companies have now used this as a roadmap or a guideline just to improve their impact over time. So feel free to use that if you'd like. Uh, we see people engaging with this in a, in a variety of different ways, and we'll talk about that in a second. In the lower left-hand corner, uh, you can also go to BenefitCore.org, and that will give you not only information about benefit, uh, benefit corporations, but also L3Cs, uh, flex purpose, other types of models that are out there. You know, the last uh, slide I want to end on is you know, we, I often uh, get asked, well, you know, I'm a major multinational corporation or I'm a major financial institution. How would I engage uh, with this movement of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises using business as force for good? And I've tried to provide a few examples of what we've seen. There, there are a variety of large multinationals who've actually decided to make one of their subsidiaries a certified B corporation. Uh, ben & Jerry's underneath Unilever is a certified B corporation, and Campbell's Soup uh, has Plum Organics, which is a certified B corporation. Uh, both UBS and Prudential are now using our impact assessment uh, to try to evaluate their impact portfolios. So uh, they use the vehicle to evaluate their inf investments. They aggregate it together and then compare and contrast it against those tens of thousands of other companies that are in our database. We also have folks like BlackRock and OfficeMax and others who have approached us around supply chain initiatives uh, where they want to use the assessment as a vehicle to evaluate uh, smaller supply chain providers who don't have uh, currently a scorecard on impact. And then finally, we have folks who engage with us on tax and procurement uh, from the governmental perspective. Uh, Philadelphia has a modest tax break for uh, certified sustainable businesses and San Francisco has uh, passed a procurement preference. With that, I'm going to hang up my uh, spurs and uh, turn it on over to Steve. Well, those are two great presentations. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, I'll follow it up with another one. But I guess I should quickly do a quick raise of hands, see who's familiar with CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project. Okay, so the basics I don't need to cover. I think everybody knows our, our flagship program, investor-led initiative for requesting climate change information. We've now moved into water and forest. We have a supply chain program. We have a cities program. Uh, just a little bit about me. I've been My role at CDP has been to manage our corporate disclosure activity, so essentially to reach out to companies, help them understand the process, understand the business case for disclosure. As you can imagine, in different sectors, it's very different in terms of the conversation you have. Um, my new role, I will be focusing on developing partnerships and trying to find new ways that we can collaborate to take sustainability or environmental sustainability disclosure to the next level in collaboration with corporations, investors, industry associations, etc. cetera. Uh, so I'd be happy to talk to anybody about that who may be interested in working together. Uh, but in terms of today, uh, I've been asked to focus on Trends, tremors, and tools. So to try to align in, in those, those categories, I have a few different indicators of, of some trends that are taking place in the disclosure world, things that we can use as a barometer to find a potential next step, um, leading into also what I, was, what I was mentioning before about my new role, which is to look at collaborations to advance disclosure um, to the next, next level. And that particularly I'll focus on scope three investments. And then finally, I'll follow up uh, with some tools, some examples of the CDP process, other, other examples of what's happening in the market to help address the deficiency in, in scope three accounting, uh, particularly when it comes to investments from financial institutions. So the first trend, I don't think this is new to, to you all if you know CDP, but our investor base from day one to now, I guess day whatever it is, but in 2013, we rose to... 722 signatory investors. That's the large pension funds, large banks, um, those folks that are managing the assets. 
In the beginning, we had uh, just under 30, or just under 40, excuse me, signatories. So that jumped from 40 to about 722. The asset base is now $87 trillion, and, and at this point, it's, it's, it's hard to keep count. But the, the point is that the investor interest, it's a barometer. It's not necessarily to point out the interest in CDP. It's the interest overall in the investment community for this type of information. And it's rising not just for climate change data, but for water data. And our most recent program that we've included into our, our umbrella of forest disclosure. Uh, last year, we had about 4,100 companies globally disclosed. This year, in 2013, it's up to over 4,600. Over 65 countries. I mean, this has now become a, a global standard, especially in the climate change space, for collecting this type of information. So it's both on the investor side as well as in the corporate community that are responding to, to this, this, this interest. There's a couple of key data points uh, from a global 500 sample talking about trends again. Uh, in terms of the amount of companies disclosing, it's, it's reached that almost critical threshold where now, now we need to take it to the next level, but about 81% of the global 500 are disclosing. We have more CPLI companies. CPLI are the top performing companies. That means they're managing climate change, not just disclosing and being transparent. But we have 60 CDLI companies, and the, the, the benchmark, for, or the sorry, the bottom to getting into the CDLI, which is uh, the upper threshold of 10% of the companies, has risen from 90 back in 2011 to now uh, 97 in 2013. So, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point now where companies have gotten to that stage that they can disclose perfectly almost. And now they're really tackling the, the performance-related indicators that are, that are about setting targets, investing in emission reduction activities, verifying their emissions, which leads me to the next point. That the amount of companies that now understand that the, the value of having quality verified data has increased tremendously from 2011 to 2013, whether that's because of a regulation or it's because of a voluntary initiative or understanding that investors want high-quality data. So hopefully we'll continue to see that increase. Uh, going into tremors, uh, just to look at two different, very different industries and how they approach scope three accounting. Uh, it may be a little bit surprising to look at the energy sector and see that their, their accounting for scope three uh, is significant in terms of their scope one and two. It makes sense. The products that they create are used by their customers, and that's where the emissions are really taking place. In the financial sector, uh, while Scope 3 accounting is arguably the most important component in terms of the lending as well as the investments of their portfolio, uh, only 6% of, of these financial institutions report the carbon impacts of their investments. So that's out of the 24% of respondents in the CDP database are financials, only 6% of them are actually reporting on their, their investments. No, that, what that means is 0.6 of the representation of the 24% of financial institutions represents 0.6 of all scope one and two emissions reported into CDP. Uh, so just to call out a couple of things that are, that are developing, there's a, an organization called the World Development Movement. It's a UK-based organization. What they're doing is taking a look at, uh, particularly in this case, Royal Bank of Scotland to see what is that what is that intensity? How much is that really that is in that, that lending portfolio? And what they came up, which is a really surprising number, World Bank of Scotland obviously is disclosing the CDP, but they're not disclosing this figure. And it could be as much as 1,200 times that of their scope one and two emissions. So what's the, what's the issue? Uh, there are multiple different methods of going about this, but nothing's really been standardized. The GHG protocol, WRI, WBCSD, in line with the UNEP financial initiative, uh, CDP, we're trying to work together to find out what is the right way to account for this. Obviously, there are different challenges, so we need to work together. But that's really the driving factor is that there is no real standardization in this methodology. Uh, a few quotes from companies in their 2013 disclosure, Bank of Montreal, talking about the fact that there are too many factors to be considered. Again, going back to the reality that there is no real standard, there's no real uh, checklist for them to go through. Uh, and the availability of an incredibility and the consistency of that, that, those inf that information that they would report is not easily available because they don't have that process. And then that regulatory landscape issue, which is changing, um, is also a challenge for companies. 
For BNP Paribas, it's a little bit different, um, but it actually goes directly to the point that there is no standard methodology. A couple of case studies I wanted to point out of companies that are trying to take a stab at this, uh, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. So what they've decided to do in terms of this is their lending portfolio. So they have one project that has a 25-year lifespan. They reported this uh, in, in terms of their 2012 GHG um, statement, which they disclosed in 2013. But they decided to incorporate this because the Australian government has a definition for emissions intensive, and so they decided that this was a project that is mission intensive based on that definition. What they basically did was they took the percentage of the financing that they provided to create this project, the total lifetime of the project's emissions, and then came up with this seemingly astronomical number, which is 200, over 250 times in terms of a scope three number for, for their lending on this one project than their total scope one and two emissions. Uh, next one, Mizuho Financial Group. Uh, this is a little bit of a different scenario. This is actually companies that, an equity uh, type scenario. So they have 30 companies which they analyzed, 15 of which had disclosed a CDP. So they went to the CDP database, looked up their GHG data, pulled that out. The other 15, they had to go to CSR reports and other places to find the information. But what they wanted to do was try to calculate what that percentage of equity holding meant in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And they found, again, uh, that about 39 times that of the scope one and two emissions is in these 30 companies. And that's, in their, that's been represented in their scope three calculation. And then a similar um, type scenario to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Citigroup has one project that they've provided financing for, 30-year lifespan. So they've, in both of these cases, they've taken the entire emissions for those, those, those terms of the project, incorporated that into the one year that they're disclosing and represented that as this big number. Now, they could have annualized it. That's another approach. But what they've done, again, is to take the, the number, the percent of financing, the total lifetime of project emissions, and calculated uh, 8.6 million as a total scope one and two and three, and then 86% of that is scope three. So talking about some tools, everybody knows CDP, so don't need to go into too much detail, but just want to point out that our role is to provide a platform for this type of data collection, reporting, management, and sharing. And so it is an opportunity for companies to look at the CDP database, look at other, other forms of reporting to find the GHG data that they could use to then report scope three more effectively. Uh, the general motivations, as I mentioned before, are coming from NGOs. They're coming from the fact that companies are wanting more from their investors uh, in terms of the feedback, what type of information do they want. And increasingly, this type of information is being asked for. The UNEP FI and WRI did a survey asking stakeholders, is this an important issue? 75% of them said it is one that we need to focus on. Uh, and mandatory reporting requirements, such as what's happening in the UK, doesn't cover scope three yet, but that will evolve uh, to requiring filings to report on, on these types of emissions. As I mentioned, we're in this task force. We're trying to figure this out, looking for, for insights and ways that we can collaborate. Uh, finally, it's on this, this point on working together in different sectors, understanding these nuances, because what happens in one sector that may really be that material component of GHG emissions or environmental impact may be very different for other sectors. And so this is a good example of that. And then the ways that we can adjust the scoring weights uh, when, we, when we rank companies to actually incentivize this type of behavior is really important. So this is my last slide. Thank you very much for your time. Look forward to your comments. All right, as Bill comes up, just have a, want to take a little question from the crowd. So Sarah, can you tell us what's going on with uh, divestment at Penn? Give us a quick overview, and then Bill will. Oh, yeah. Um, well, so where, where should I start? <laughs> okay. Um, so divestment at Penn started last February. Like our group formed last February when Bill McKibben came to speak here. We spent most of last semester trying to understand how Penn works on investments. Unfortunately, we don't have anybody uh, majoring in finance in our group. So we're working on that. That was one of Paul's suggestions. But um, we took a speech to university council. There was a lot of political pushback. Um, some stressful times, so I think this semester we're thinking about reframing it. We met with Paul. We're thinking about possibly um, 
going a little bit away from the term divestment because we got a lot of um, like stress from upper levels here and uh, going towards like carbon efficiency and maybe hopefully uh, putting it into our climate action plan. So, yeah, I would love to discuss this. And Ariel's here too. She's another member of the group. We'd love to discuss any of this with any of you all because you're all experts um, in some area. So, please find us or email us. That would be How great. How many people on the divestment team? Um, we have, I, I'd say, like 8 to 10 really core members that are really interested, but this is a topic that's, you know, all of the members that are now focused on this uh, have a lot of experience in sustainability because it's not like the first, like, oh, yeah, I love nature. Let me go work on divestment. It's like a, a little more of a sophisticated topic. So, like you said, we have 19 sustainability groups here all working on different topics, one umbrella that encompasses all of those, and then divestment is just one of those groups. So the eight of us are working on uh, resolutions, maybe referendum, things like that. So, yeah. Right. And the team members are freshmen, computer science, and business, and junior chemical engineering, and me mechanical yeah. engineering. We have some grad students, too, so right. all over the place. We're going to recruit from finance. Okay. And one last question. Sarah, what do your, what do your parents do? My parents? Yeah. Um, my, why? Just for I thought there was a what? connection. No, my dad's yeah. a psychologist. Okay. <laughs> I think it was Ariel that. Your parents are engineers? Doctors? Doctors? No, okay. All right. Late afternoon. So, uh, all right. Bring us home. Be Great. engaging. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm Bill Bowie, and um, as Paul mentioned, I'm co-curating the uh, new metrics uh, channel for sustainable brands. So please do contact me if you have content. And uh, in fact, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit about that in this uh, presentation. And uh, these are actually a couple of really good tee-ups for this. But I'm going to start with uh, the tremor. I'm, I'm reversing the order a little bit, sort of a, an earthquake happening as we speak, um, how many people are familiar with the name Rockstrom or the notion of planetary limits? This, this, uh, this. Okay, not not many. This is a. Um, if, if you if you uh, uh, paid attention to Rob Bernard's uh, presentation from Microsoft earlier, you pay attention to the red. And what this is showing us is the the line in the middle uh, is the boundaries, our safe operating space. In other words, this is where our uh, ecology, our environment, is supporting our actions. And so the, air, the zones that are in red, which includes climate change, as you can see, biodiversity, uh, are in the, the extreme red zone. So we are, uh, in the words of the Global Footprint Network, we are overshooting our capacity. We're overshooting the thresholds of these planetary limits. And um, we're doing it not only on, on environmental impacts, but also we're undershooting on social impacts in the sense that we're not generating enough uh, human capital to, uh, to, to continue on viably. And so uh, the, the main takeaway from this slide is really what Alan White and uh, uh, Bob Willard talked about earlier is you've got to have a goal line. And that goal line is a threshold of whether you are sustainable or not. So a lot of this talk, sustainable investing, as it's currently practiced, does not do this. Sustainable investing currently ignores thresholds. So it's not actually measuring sustainability. It's measuring incremental improvement. And that's largely the same uh, thing that's happening in the corporate world right now. We're measuring uh, incremental improvement towards sustainability, towards operating within these thresholds, but we're not actually um, measuring with the goal line in mind. So this, is, this ties into Sarah. So um, arguably, the fossil-free divestment campaign that 350.org has, has mounted is a threshold-based advocacy campaign because it's talking about um, meeting the 350 parts per million threshold, or stated another way, is the 565 gigaton carbon budget that we've got. So that's, that's all of the carbon that we can emit safely, according to the scientific community, between now and 2050. Okay? And so 350.org's divestment campaign is, is a wonderful starting ground for that, but as Sarah points out, it's not the whole picture. So my, my, my sort of secret uh, here that isn't being talked about is that the campaign currently ignores the demand side 
So it's, it's, it's focusing on the supply side. In other words, the companies that are harvesting the carbon, the oil companies. But those aren't actually the companies, as, as Steve's uh, slide pointed out. Those companies, the, the burning of, those, of that carbon is in their scope three. It's in their, it's downstream, so to speak. So right now, this campaign doesn't deal with the biggest part of the problem, which is the emitters of the carbon, the companies that are, that are still in most portfolios. So what that brings us to is, uh, this is a, a piece that I co-authored with uh, Mark McElroy, who um, was uh, presented yesterday with Mike Bellamente in the, in the Climate Counts panel, uh, and Kerry Krasinski, who was a co-founder or co-coiner of the term sustainable investing. And we were also working behind the scenes with Nick Robbins of HSBC, who was Kerry's uh, co-author, co-editor of the Sustainable Investing Books um, and what we recognized or coined was the notion of threshold investing, which was essentially um, adding a new or one could argue a necessary dimension to sustainable investing, which is that you actually uh, uh, measure progress in your portfolio, the portfolio companies, measure their progress towards an actual end zone, towards the thresholds, and arguably that's not happening uh, except for potentially a few um, uh, examples. So, uh, and the, there was investors wanted. This is a an opportunity to move into this space. So, the 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 way to get there, one way to get there, is to uh, run the numbers. And I'm just pointing out three uh, freely available tools for running the numbers. So, CSO, the the Center for Sustainable Organizations that that Mark McElroy runs, they have a freely available context based carbon metric. You can download it. Uh, uh, from their website. You can enter your numbers if you're a company into the cells and out will pop a determination of whether your carbon emissions trajectory aligns with what the science says it needs to be. Okay, same thing with Autodesk. Uh, they, they have what's called CFACT. Again, freely available. Download it straight from their website. Pop your numbers in and it will tell you whether your emissions as a company or the emissions of a portfolio that you have are in line with uh, the, the, the science, what the science says we need to do on carbon. Finally, the 3% solution is a joint project between uh, World Wildlife Fund and CDP. And what it does is it uses these same uh, science-based targets, so it's operating within the threshold, but it adds a, an important element of uh, identifying the profit that's embedded in those carbon reductions. So as Roberta pointed out earlier, she, we're seeing decoupling, where you can actually profit from carbon reduction instead of the assumption that you would um, lose out from, uh, uh, from a financial perspective. Um, finally, and this is where my role in this panel is to sort of move us towards the future so uh, along with the Climate Counts study that was talked about yesterday, we've conceptualized a Climate Counts index, which would screen companies based on their performance. So as we noted yesterday, uh, 51 of the companies in this Climate Counts study came up as um, uh, sustainable and had varying scores, uh, uh, better and worse, and then 49 of them scored unsustainably. You can apply a classic investment in strategy of weighting your portfolio according to those scores so that you're overweighting companies mm -hmm. that are performing better on their carbon reduction, which ostensibly, if the CDP data is, is right, that will have more profit embedded in it. And the laggards on carbon reductions would be uh, performing worse. So the, the key here is to build portfolios that profit from climate solutions. And uh, my last slide... Um, is that this applies to not just carbon. This applies across all sustainability impacts. Anytime that you are, are, are uh, asking the question, is this sustainable? Is this good enough? Whether it's water, whether it's waste, whether it's living wages or other uh, uh, impacts on human or social capital, um, you can measure that. And so here, uh, this is a... Um, 
a version of that Rockstrom diagram where we are looking at environmental impacts. Those are issues that can be screened in an investment portfolio and companies that are operating outside of their thresholds uh, can be either underweighted, they can be screened out, they can be uh, the focus of engagement, shareholder engagement. So there's many tools that you could use. On the social side, as uh, Alan White said yesterday, we, we want to um, undershoot on, on social impacts. So in other words, we want to build up social capital. Again, you can measure companies that are uh, operating um, in, in ways that enhance uh, social and, and human and other forms of, of uh, anthro, anthro-capital is what we call it. Um, and w- as well on economics, so broader than just um, financial for the company itself, but building economic uh, viability in their uh, uh, sphere of influence. So that um, brings us in uh, uh, to the landing pad here. We've got a a sense of where things are heading for the future. And again, if you have uh, questions about this or if you have uh, material that you want to add to the dialogue, um, please check in with me. Thank you. All right, we like the we like the last line: build portfolios of profit from sustainability solutions. Um, so, before the rest of the panels uh, invade, any questions for any of the panelists? Um, how do you weight different issues when you think about sustainability investments? So, for example, if you're um, talking to investors, how do you say you know an incident like what happened with Kevin is? should be weighted higher or lower compared to something that could have a large impact on the environment versus governance issues that could lead to other kinds of economic risks. Um, I was just interested in how each of you would think about that and how you would communicate with that with investors on that topic. The way that we're looking at it is through those metrics of health, wealth, earth, equality, and trust, and we're using HIP scores to do that. So when they look at portfolios, there's specific weightings that they give to within those five dimensions. So there's like 30 metrics that you're using to analyze companies um, along the trust metric, which would be the reporting of of fines and compliance issues and that kind of thing. And then you weight that according to a specific weighting in the portfolio. So the the way that we're doing it through um, looking at our uh, scoring mechanism, for example, We're using their proprietary scoring, but the fundamental categories to keep it very simple, because there are so many different metrics that we've been talking about and rating systems, is certain points for health, certain points for wealth, certain points for earth, equality, and trust. Do you want to clarify a little bit more on your... I mean, I think that's a good start. Bart and Bill, do you have a perspective? Sure. So... um... A great question. Our assessment actually has 48 different versions of it, depending upon how big you are, uh, where you're located, and what type of industry you're in, uh, with the idea that um, a manufacturer should have a higher weighting on their environmental practices than a law firm. Uh, so it really depends where you where you sit in that Rubik's Cube, and then it's governed. Uh, importantly, what I'd encourage you to look for in any rating system is that it's independently governed, that it is transparent so you know exactly what they're measuring, and that it's dynamic because none of us have it right. So it needs to iterate, and there needs to be a constant feedback loop. And so we put out a new version every two years and have a new version coming up. And then lastly, on the transparency side, we provide full transparency so that people can decide that what I care most about is the environment or community or workers. And by rating companies at each of the different levels as well as overall, not only do we provide how it was weighted, but you might decide that what matters most to you is finding an investment portfolio that's specifically focused on environmental issues. And given that threshold investing, that concept is is uh, very new, um, the way that it will most likely uh, uh, come about is in one impact at a time. So carbon is the area where there is the most research and methodology around that. So what we foresee is a portfolio uh, based on an index uh, focused on, on, on carbon impacts being the first to come out. Um, water would probably be next. And so it would be sort of a, a, an impact-specific approach until there are enough impacts that are there that you could then uh, combine a portfolio that looks at, at, at both, uh, you know, at a number of environmental impacts and also social impacts. So, but it, right now I think it's too early uh, that we need to start with, with one area of impact first. I've, I just have a couple of examples um, 
that partners to CDP, what they've done to leverage the information, the data that's out there to, to do their own, um, their own development of products. Uh, Nedbank, it's an, um, a South African bank, uh, created an ETF based on a, a green index, which takes the first criteria being transparency and then weights that ETF based on uh, performance of companies. And this is related to climate change. So they've taken the, the CDP rankings and then created an ETF in that, and that, that ETF outperforms the index uh, by, I think, somewhere around 30%. Uh, so that is liquid. It's being traded. Um, another example is we do some basic analysis. It's not a like-to-like, like, um, I guess, comparison here. But if you take a look at the leading companies, so the, the, the leadership for disclosure and performance in the Global 500, we've done this analysis for the past three years. It's very basic. It's not a direct comparison or a direct relationship. Uh, but those companies that are on the top of the leadership index that have the highest scores, the highest rankings, do outperform the benchmark of companies. So it's an indicator of good overall management. If you talk to an investor, that's probably what they would say, is that it's an, an indication of good overall management. And then lastly, we did a, a joint research project with Sustainable Insight Capital Management, and we found that the top companies in terms of disclosure, transparency, outperform their peers on three very traditional metrics, return on equity, cash flow stability, and dividend growth. And so that report is a tool. It's free. It's available. Please take a look at it. It's very interesting. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, and so what Bloomberg has done uh, with CDP as well is to show that the carbon disclosures beat the S&P 500 index, both for transparency as well as for performance. That's right. Yeah. For Global 500, the performance leaders outperformed the Global 500 index by 8% over the last, I uh, don't know the amount of years, three, three or so years. Great. Donnie? Sure. So repeating the question was, since you don't need to be a benefit corporation to be a B corporation, what's the overlap? And so... Not just what other structures are associated with B Sure. So every certified B corporation must embed in their uh, corporate governing documents a commitment to stakeholders. That can be accomplished by being a benefit corporation. It can also be accomplished if you're an LLC to rewrite your membership agreement. If you're a partnership, you can rewrite your partnership agreement. If you're a corporation in a state that has a, um, uh, a particular um, a stakeholder provision, you can actually just use our old language that we had. Uh, what we're seeing right now is uh, the number of benefit corporations, however, is uh, growing more rapidly than the certification, not surprisingly. Uh, and the overlap, right now we have about 450 or so benefit corporations in the last 18 months versus 850 certified B corporations over the course of the first seven years. Could it be a non-distributing Yes. We have cooperatives. We have ESOPs. Absolutely. All right. Final question. If not, I have one for the panel. All right. Panel, write your billboard. Ten words or less, as one of my old mentors would say. <laughs> What's your 10-word or less action as we're driving down the street in our electric cars or our driverless electric cars? What should we do? 10, ten words or less is really difficult. Um, <laughs> That's what billboards are. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm not going to do 10 words, but, but I think just the general takeaway from our perspective at CDP is that information is what leads to decision-making. Uh, so whether you're a corporation, an investor, a government, the information that you disclose in a CDP, which we thank you tremendously for, because we know it's a hard resource, and the investors thank you for it. Your, your, your potential company clients thank you for that information. So continue to disclose and work with CDP so that we can make the information better and more comparable. So right. thank you. So it's like you inform, you decide. Thank you. Right. Perfect. Okay, great. Okay. Anybody else? I would say 10 words or less is that get this information into the mainstream, especially the CPA community. Fantastic. That was 10. Mm -hmm. All right. Bart and Bill? Um, I would say measure what matters and uh, consider stakeholders as well as shareholders. Outstanding. And for investment, uh, profit from the shift from negative impacts to positive impacts. Outstanding. All right. Thanks, the panel.